0: Hello and welcome to the Ink to Film podcast where we read the book and then see the movie. I'm Luke and I'm James. Uh, This is going to be part two of our discussion of Stephen King's 1986 landmark horror novel It. Let's get to it. Part 2 begins with Ben Hanscom, who is drunk now, on his flight, back, uh, flight to Maine. The stewardess sees him and thinks he's a corpse, then realizes he's alive. He mentions remembering building a dam with his friends, which is something that will come up uh, a lot more later, uh, mentions needing a silver bullet to stop a monster, and wishing that he hadn't given away all of his silver coins to Ricky Lee, the bartender from the previous section. And then we transport in his memory back to the classroom. Hearing the bell, it kind of overlaps with modern, the modern moment. And the, it's a very transportative, almost uh, hyper real moment where he is taken back to his memory of being in class. Uh, anything you want to talk about there? So
1: first off, it's, we're dealing with Ben Hanscom after having just drank a large stein of whiskey. So uh we're back to super drunk Ben Hanscom and yeah he's sitting on the plane um looking really gaunt I guess like really like he's corpse like corpse yeah mm-hmm. um I thought it was really cool that during this section he kind of like we don't it kind of seems like supernatural in a, in, a, in a sense because he's literally falls back through time
0: Yeah the way he so. describes going back through memory is is almost like like I said hyper real before but it's it's almost like magical realism like it's it's something more than just a normal memory it brought
1: ideas of time travel to me so it was like very it was in keeping with that supernatural vibe that Stephen King's been threading in throughout
0: yeah so so in the classroom uh we get we get Ben as a kid who is heavy set, to put it kindly and he's, and he's thinking about Beverly, who he has a huge crush on. Um, he compar- He talks about the other girls that he's seen and how he, he doesn't like them as much. Um, we get a description of her from his point of view. And then we find out about Henry Bowers, who demanded that he uh, would give him his test answers and Ben refuses. The bell rings on the last day. And Ben escapes Henry because he gets out first. But then outside, he encounters uh, Victor Chris and Belch Huggins, who are two other bullies that are friends of, of Henry Bowers. And uh, yeah, we, we get some discussion of some murders that have been going on, some disappearances. We learn that the whole town has kind of a curfew that's been enacted. It, there's there's a lot of kind of jumping around this. It's not just one flashback. so we get like a flashback to the moment in class, but then we get a flashback to another time when the test thing happened. and then we get a talk about uh, when Ben's mother sits him down to have a talk about the curfew and and asks him about sex crimes if he understands what that means. He says he does, even though he says he's lying. Um, he doesn't really understand what it means. And then, I guess that section ends with uh Ben writing bev an anonymous uh postcard with a haiku on it.
1: I liked how in the first the first part of this novel, we didn't really get much on Ben other than he was he was good looking now he's a successful architect and he drank a ton of whiskey um I liked getting to see what led to him becoming this this man that was like the polar opposite of what he had been as a kid he was like we get into how he's like uncomfortable with his body and how he's insecure um he's you know as any like 12 year old is afraid to talk to girls that kind of thing right so it's just cool to see his we i just really like how we're getting to view the characters from two total different they almost feel like two total different characters within the same book
0: yeah i should say that uh the bullies he runs into don't beat him up or anything at this point they just are laughing at him and we, we just learned that he gets picked on a lot. And then next up, we, we hear about the Kanduskig, the Canal, the Standpipe, and Bassey Park. These are all important locations that kind of get introduced one after another. And then uh, we get the real confrontation, where Henry Bowers does catch up to him with his friends Victor, Chris, and Belch Huggins. And he tries to carve a letter H into Ben's belly, and does get the letter h he's going to carve his whole name in i should say and this is yeah this is like the real bullying going down and then ben uh launches himself over the railing falls down the slopes into the barrens uh henry follows after him they uh, crash through the underbrush and then uh ben charges bowers kicks him in the balls um <laughs> there's just a big confrontation between these kids um and ben gets some really good blows in on henry and then uh ends up running away after he kicks him in the balls and hiding so throughout this whole second part of this novel
1: we're getting to see ben like i said before he's insecure and all of that but i he's such a badass like he like multiple times as we'll get into more of it but like multiple times he like is scared to stand up for himself and all of that kind of thing but he ends up doing it and doing so fairly successfully i mean he did get a letter carved into his body um <laughs> yeah but other than that like pretty he, gnarly he got pretty messed up but he also messed the other guy up
0: right like he definitely like henry kind of bites off more than he can chew a little bit there the h had already been referenced when he was
1: an adult right he had talked yeah to, he had thought about it flashed back to it kind of
0: he mentioned it to uh the bartender
1: Right. And then so we got to see that where he got the H and that kind of thing. And like, I mean, that's pretty severe bullying. That's pretty, pretty rough stuff.
0: There's a lot of that that goes on in this book where something gets dropped in a previous section. Like it just kind of gets like a sentence. And when you hear it, you think, oh, there's there's a story there, but we're not getting it yet. And what it does is it makes it so that you're curious about what what the true story is. And that way, when it comes around later, it's fulfilling a, like, a want you have as a reader. Like, uh, King creates this void where you're curious, and then he answers that curiosity. And he does this all the time. I don't know if you noticed that. Yeah, I like the payoffs, too. Yeah, so speaking of this kind of hopping around thing, in the middle of this fight, we then get a memory within this flashback where Ben is thinking about a cold January day, when he's in in school and in talking with his teacher, and by the way, we get a gorgeous description of what this winter, the ice cold, frigid Maine winter day is like, and and I think evocative, beautiful, and and it won't really do me as du- justice to talk about it anymore, other than to say if you can read the prose, it's it's amazing, um, and then. Uh, ben leaves and he's walking home and he sees the clown standing on a frozen river and He notices that it looks like the mummy Boris Karlov's mummy specifically. It's like Boris Karlov's mummy meets a clown and then it comes towards him and the balloons float into the wind at him and He runs away kind of barely getting away and then later he kind of convinces himself that maybe it wasn't real but he still kind of knows deep down that it was. What do you think of that? Firstly, I really
1: enjoyed the the mummy reference. Like, yeah, I, there's a, there's a few of those like coming up here in a little bit, and yeah, um, these classic the,
0: films, right? That were that would have been popular at the time. In the exactly, 50s.
1: it's so cool during the '50s to get that that kind of like that's like the culturally relevant things that are going on, and like I don't know, I just think it's really fun because they're classics now. Um, couple of things with that these scenes these encounter scenes are my favorite ones these are i mean i i feel like you get the you get the sense as you go through these these parts in this or i guess the sections that are chapters in this part the second part Mm -hmm. that kind of a lot of the main characters have had some sort of encounter and these encounters
0: are awesome right it's a lot of the first encounter with like they are all are revealing to each other the first time they see the clown or yeah or whatever it is they Or whatever it is it, yeah. yeah and
1: it. Uh, it is interesting because it's a mummy but at the same time it still has like clown characteristics or like a silver suit or i just think i think it's really cool uh the balloons is definitely a thing the balloons weren't blowing around in the the it was a blizzard basically out it was really cold and the wind was blowing really hard and the the, the balloons were floating out in front of it um which is is impossible and he couldn't believe it something something else that i really like about these these scenes are how they're able to get away because so many people are disappearing and so many people are dying to find out how these kids are like savvy enough or lucky
0: enough to get away from it is really interesting so in the first episode our first episode you talked about how you were really curious to see a lot about these kids and how they met each other and, and and that kind of stuff is did you feel like that this delivered on that what you were looking forward to i think this delivered on on all fronts like I, like I said, i had been looking forward to
1: like seeing kind of the the adults move back towards dairy because they're all heading towards dairy, and then uh, I think every single one of those kids uh, who would eventually become the adults has like they paid it all off. Like I know so much more about each of the characters now because we went back and had at least a, a little section of them as a kid and kind of what they were going
0: through during that age and that time. Yeah. So I, I mean, I thought so too. I think I think like I said before. St- King creates curiosity in the reader and then delivers on it. And this is an example of that. Uh, So Ben also overhears the uh, bullies interact with um, a stuttering kid that he recognizes as stuttering Bill. But he's hiding when it happens and doesn't come out right at first. And then we get um, a new part where it kind of switches characters real quick. And we get Bill as an adult, also on a plane and he's also uh remembering and he starts talking about a bike he called silver uh, he remembers showing it to eddie kasprak he thinks he remembers that the bike saved his and richie's life one day and we get the house on niebolt street mentioned which is another important location and then once again we kind of get this transportative flashback where all of a sudden we see him riding silver in the 50s and Uh, we get his memory of, uh, uh, Richie and how Richie's mouth always gets the better of him and how the bullies beat up Richie one time because he like basically like smart, smart talked him. And then once again, we move back to the river. It keeps coming back to the river. I would say a lot of these like little asides all kind of circle back around to the river. And now we get the point of view of Bill at the river, and Eddie's having an asthma attack after after the bullies come over and, like, kick apart their dam that they've been making. And he's trying to calm down Eddie, and he thinks that Eddie's going to die because he's choking and, like, can't breathe with his asthma. And then finally, Ben Hanscom appears, all beat up from the woods, and he says, Ben, you need to stay with Eddie. I'm going to go get his medicine.
1: It was cool to see the introduction of the characters kind of they knew each other but seeing them meet and interact for the first time was interesting the thing with eddie and the inhaler i can tell is going to be a through line it's going to be he's his inhaler is going to run out his something's going to happen and they're going to need uh some sort of assistance he's going to be kind of i I don't want to say that he's going to be like a hindrance but he's going to be an issue i feel like like he's going to be a liability potentially in the future um I thought it was cool how the store clerk interacted with the kid and how he, like, we kind of got the store clerk's perspective for a minute and how he, had, like, had dealt with Eddie's mom, who was kind of a pain in his opinion. Yeah. And he's like, I could have ripped her off. I could have, I could have taken more money for Because she was, she's convinced that something as cheap as his, as his asthmatic medication should, it basically the asthmatic medication isn't going to work because it's so cheap. And he's like, well, I should just charge her more.
0: Yeah, but we, we, we learn um, in that section that the Hydrox mist that he's selling them is actually just tap water with like a little bit of like, like a chemically smell in it, essentially, yeah. to fool them. So it's a placebo. Right. And we get confirmation from the pharmacist. And it's kind of fucked up, too, because the pharmacist just ch- decides to do it, essentially, and, and 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 sell it to them, even though it's not real. So that kind of puts the whole thing into a new perspective because we know that what's going on with Eddie is in his mind and, and it's not a physical ailment he actually has. So Bill returns to the Barrens, uh, gives him the aspirator, which he breathes in and then immediately starts to feel better um, as the placebo effect uh, is in full swing. Um, and then they kind of all become friends right in that moment. They, uh, they laugh and they talk about wanting to come back and build the dam tomorrow, which Ben has a bunch of ideas about. Um, he seems like preternaturally good at designing the dam, and then uh, Ben convinces Eddie to like spill chocolate uh, milk on his shirt to to hide the fact that he's been bleeding, because he because um, he got punched I think by by one of the bullies, get my bloody nose. And then okay, then we get on to Bill here, and he's talking with his family, um, and he is talking about. The cold that's between his parents now and we get this kind of contemplative part where he's realizing the rift that exists because of his dead brother and the stress it's putting on his parents' relationship and then he uh, creeps into his brother's room and opens up a photo album. What do you think of this part? Again, this is the first encounter Bill kind of has. Another mm-hmm. great scene.
1: Um, the Kind of the gap that's left behind by Georgie, this is something that I had said in the first episode that I was interested to see like how how Bill had uh dealt with the death of his brother and how it affected like his family life and stuff and basically he doesn't have a family life anymore his his parents are like they ignore him, they're mm-hmm. sad all the time, um so he kind of just does whatever he wants and tries to stay out of
0: their way. yeah, we hear about this room being kind of a shrine right like it's it's untouched and I, I mean that's something I've heard of in other places too, as being common for for people who have a, a child die that they kinda keep all the stuff and, and, and uh he he goes in there and gets yelled at one time for trying to take a toy out, I think it was.
1: Well that was that was Bill's dad, right? Bill's dad went in and he was gonna get rid of all the old toys and stuff, take it to Goodwill. Oh, okay. And then uh and then sh- the mom saw that he was doing that and yeah. really wasn't happy about that. So he put it all back exactly where it was and yeah, it's become a shrine to him.
0: Yeah uh and so i should say in the photo album he, he it, what freaks him out is he sees a picture of his little brother wink and then he like throws the book on the ground and then blood spills out of it as he like runs out of the room and i
1: think something said like um i'm gonna get you i'm gonna i'm gonna get you in the closet or something like
0: that yeah he hears like a he hears like a whisper of, of yeah. his brother's voice but it sounds kind of like pennywise too i think so he's like going through this this scrapbook
1: kind of thing and looking at old pictures and it's like building up to something you can tell that it's like creepy to be in the room in general and then it's like building up to something and i didn't i just expected that him to see like a still photo or something of like something scary but instead like the actual photos moving winking kind of taunting him and then he throws it and after he throws it it starts gushing blood
0: yeah so this next section we get to is uh, for about the Corcoran boys. Um, it's kind of an aside because these aren't any of our main characters. But I'm going to go ahead and use our explicit tag here and say this is a really fucking dark section. This is a, a section about a abusive father who is just an absolute just piece of shit human. And we hear about him beating up on his like young sons and one of them goes missing. And then he basically kills the other one with this hammer that in a brutal description, he like basically kind of loses control of himself. And it's kind of unclear whether or not maybe it has something to do with this, but it's like the, the, the rage and the abusiveness is already there. So it's not like it comes out because of it um and then we learn about the brother who has disappeared we actually get the real story and this is the second creature that you were talking about the reference to a the classic horror novel and that he imagines it as the creature from the black lagoon who chases after him knocks him over and then he he thinks like oh if i just don't believe in this it won't it actually it can't actually hurt me and then it rips his head off literally to end the in the section
1: so two awesome elements the universal horror monsters from the 50s that's awesome yeah you said and um i just thought it was so interesting that you were this is kind of like a through line where it is like you're saying like he's like preying on these people who are already violent or already kind of hateful and then he's like he's like preying on them and then Kind of framing them for these disappearances yeah. and murders and that kind of thing with um yeah. we had the the gay man who was thrown off the the bridge and then it killed the ended up killing him and then the the guys who had thrown him off the bridge were kind of framed in that situation and then this one uh kind of similar situation
0: and it's like both times it seems like they would have they might have done it anyway. so it's almost like just like that maybe that one percent tick over the edge that, that it gives them
1: yeah he kills one son with a hammer so you know he's got it in him and then he kind of seems like he's like trying to get away from it and try to be i guess he's still beating his other son but he's trying to uh, not atone he's not really atoning either but i think what what i'm trying to get at is he when the other son turns up missing everybody's like how why is he missing and obviously he killed his other son so they just assumed it was him but he's like look if i killed him you would, you would know it, kind of. He's like, I wouldn't be here right now telling you that I didn't kill him. He's like, I've already right. killed one son.
0: Well, because so he we, we learned that he admits to killing his other son. And, okay, so here's a part that I totally didn't get, and I don't know if maybe this is a 50s thing or what, but it says that he admits to killing his son with a hammer, and he's given two to ten years in Shawshank. Two to ten years for killing a <laughs> tiny child i was like what the hell like that sentencing just seems so weird to me i don't know i don't know maybe there's a reason for that that i just don't know about but it seemed like criminally short term for the murder of a child he had a good lawyer man <laughs> yeah maybe um and then so oh, also we get confirmation that um it changes because we get a we get a description of him changing away from being the creature from the black lagoon so you in the first section kind of hinted that you thought maybe it turns into whatever someone fears the most. Is that holding up? Do you think that's what's going on here? Yeah, I was going to wait till the end cuz there's a few more things that build up, but I have a pretty
1: pretty big theory about certain things that that I think are are taking place here with okay. yeah, I think that the fear he's definitely he kind of becomes whatever someone he's kind of like um like a bogart from Harry Potter where like <laughs> okay. when they see him it, it becomes the thing that you fear the most. Yeah, and maybe um, a Boggart is like him. Exactly, yeah. Well, yeah, yeah. obviously <laughs> this was written first. Yeah. So, yeah, I just think that, that they become what you fear most, or he, it becomes what, what you fear most, and uh, the rest of
0: my theory I'll talk about later on. Okay. Uh, so next up we get Mike Hanlon, um, and we get him as a kid. This is the first time we've seen him as a child, um, and he's riding his bike and heading to Bassey Park, and he finds grooves in the dirt, and we we realize that he's come upon the site where uh, the second Corcoran boy was killed um, he finds a sc- scrap of cloth and then he has a memory to his first encounter and his first encounter was when his father sent him to the the um, the metalworks is that the name of it I'm ironworks it. I believe ironworks thank you yeah since it sends him to the ironworks and then he gets there and he starts thinking about this movie called rodan which i googled and it's a real movie um it looks like it looks kind of like something you would see in a godzilla film and it's this big bird and uh he starts thinking about this bird and as he's thinking about it sure enough he finds a giant bird in one of the in one of the like smokestacks i think and it flies out, and he has this big kind of showdown with it where he has to go and hide in one of the smokestacks and throw tile at it. Um, at one point, he mentions that he feels like somebody like lends strength to his arm as he's throwing, and he gets this like really good hit where it hits the bird right in the eye. Um, and it's not really expounded on what happened there, but that's kind of just like a mysterious moment.
1: Yeah, I had that written down. I was like, okay, so that's obviously something there. Um, yeah. This scene was crazy because... Before, it had been like, oh, it's becoming like some sort of scary monster that people would typically fear. And then in this right. case, it's it becomes this giant bird. And it's got, you know, it's... And it's flying. It's an aerial yeah. threat now. so And it's huge, too. right? Like it has like 10-foot wings on each side and everything. So as soon as they were doing this, I was like, okay, so it can become like... It, it it can basically be a dragon if it wants to. It can be something yeah. super super dangerous.
0: <laughs> Modern day, it would be a dragon with Daenerys Targaryen on it.
1: Exactly. <laughs> and these kids have to f- face off against these you know crazy things that it can become, which makes it even even scarier. It's
0: showing how capable it is. Yeah,
1: and yeah, the the force throwing the tile was definitely like, in my mind, I was like, that's something. That's got to be something there. That's something. Do you think it's do you think it's turtle related? I don't know if it's turtle related, but I think it plays into my
0: my theory that I'll talk about again later on. <laughs> okay, all right. So next up, I mean, there's this is a big section, so we got a lot we got a lot to cover here. So I'm gonna try try and keep moving, you know. Um, we get Eddie Kasprak as an adult, and he's driving through Boston, heading towards Maine, and uh, then we get a flashback, and he, we're back at the dam, and they are it's the next day, and they are working on bins version of the dam that he came he comes up with which is this like really effective piece of architecture that creates this huge problem that um ends up bringing a cop that's a little later um also i i this is the first time i wrote down where we get richie as a boy being super offensive <laughs> he he has the most racist terrible voices that he throws around um in particular uh i'm gonna say inward jim um just is it's it's amazingly bad i just couldn't believe
1: it i i was like come on i was like (laughs) i I know it's the 50s but come on
0: (laughs) yeah i think i think i do think stephen king is trying to make a point about um how ignorant people were about race and especially like white boys in the 50s in a north a new england town like they really don't even there is a slight innocence not to explain it or to make it okay but to, like it it just was a thing and like if he he grew up in that time this is the time in which king was a child and i'm sure he heard these exact sort of things being said by people who didn't know any better
1: i don't think it's king's fault i just thought like like yeah it's it's obviously the 50s and he's trying to stay true to what it was back then um yeah. but very offensive
0: <laughs> yeah i did uh, i did have a note where i said uh did richie and grow up to be jeff dunham because he talks about wanting to be a ventriloquist and have all these racist voices Uh, yeah so anyway I just (laughs) immediately thought of Jeff Jeff (laughs) Dunn he's the most
1: famous you know he's a comedian uh, ventriloquist he's the most famous one so yeah it makes sense
0: Um, anyway I thought this was similar to a little bit like hearing about a, a kid who like dresses up in blackface because he wants to dress up as Martin Luther King like, it's a lot of kids who just don't understand how racist the thing they are doing is. And it's like, there's a slight innocence there. And it's clear that Richie is parroting things that he is hearing on TV. Like, that's that's what culture was like at the time. It's like watching Mad Men, right? And seeing and seeing this kind of stuff. And seeing right. the sexism that goes on there. It's, 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 it's cementing it in the 1950s culture. Um, But that doesn't mean every time, every time he busts out some of these voices, I just cringe so hard. There's a few that don't bother me as much, but there's definitely some very offensive ones. Like, for whatever reason, him making fun of an Irish cop is like fine. But yeah, some of the other ones, especially, especially that particular one. Um, We also get a lot of like anti-Semitism getting thrown around about Stanley, who is the only Jewish character. Um, so, there's just a lot of this kind of stuff. And, and, and it's, I'm, I'm wondering if there's maybe a, a comment about some of the like casual evil, maybe in society. I, yeah, and, I definitely think that that's the case because
1: he's like, it's not like the N word wasn't offensive in 1986. Like right. he was doing it on, like there was a reason to do it. He wouldn't just put it in. I think it's definitely like you're saying, it's that casual, ignorant, hateful stuff that people, as, as people become more
0: cultured or more woke, there's a lot of there's <laughs> yeah. a lot of uh, no one was woke in the fifties yeah, very no little, very few people I should say not no one very few <laughs> yeah, so it's
1: definitely showing where we've been and the kinds of things that people have had to go through because of just ignorance and I, yeah. there's definitely something being said there
0: yeah I, I I think my I beg the question, but I believe that King is is saying is showing that there's evil kind of everywhere you look and and maybe that says something about. The nature of it and its ability to exist in our in our world. Um, okay, so we move on to Eddie here, who's remembering a scabby hobo, is his words, who comes out and offers to give him a blowjob. Um, and the hobo is described in a way that is like monstrous and frightening. We get a discussion of the Sif, um, which they uh, some of the kids think he has and uh we get another description of how some of these kids think sex works which is a very adolescent kind of naive thing (laughs) um and i I point that out because it's it's that's another thing that um adolescent sexuality is a big part of this book as as squicky as that might be it's something that definitely gets talked about a lot yeah, I don't think he gets into any, like, weird
1: situations with it. I just think he, he's doing the innocence play again, like, where it's, like, right. his kids don't know any better. They don't know any, what they're even talking about. But I thought it was, I was laughing when I was, he, like, this crazy right. it hobo was offering a child a blowjob. And I was just, like, this is ridiculous. This is crazy. Yeah. And, I mean, it, like, he turned it in, like, like I can't remember his ex- exactly how he said it. But Pennywise was being, he was pretty, pretty creepy,
0: yeah, so that's what happens next, right? He like, he goes back to the house, and Pennywise now comes out as this like, like demented version that's way worse of this encounter he's had. So he knows about this fear that Eddie has, and so he says the same thing, you know, he says "blow job," I'll give you a blow job, and and it's like this really creepy, like just saying that to a kid, and you know, comes after him, and then he he escapes on his bike. And then uh and then well anything you want to talk about there? I like that the bikes
1: are the Eagles from Lord of the Rings. I just wanted to say that. They just if they hop on their bike, you know <laughs> yeah. that they're probably
0: good. Like there are some <laughs> there are some some close calls but they're out of there. <laughs> yeah, later on, yeah. Yeah, we get it. we we hop back to the, to um Bill telling the story about the photo album. So this is this is now where they start to tell these stories to each other. Um and Bill tells the story of the photo album, Eddie tells the story of the leper, and Ben tells the story about the mummy. And then uh, Stanley starts to tell his story, but he gets interrupted and doesn't end up saying it. But this is the point where the the children are starting to realize something's going on, and they've all individually encountered it. And it's
1: also bringing them together. Like they're all they're all getting they're all close because they they built that expertly crafted dam that um, the police officer had to show up for. But like Ben kind of starts to lean into how he's lonely and he starts to like talk to these people who've also had similar situations happen. Bill's kind of the leader. I just Mm -hmm. think it's very interesting to see all of the characters take shape and kind of get their, get in their
0: roles. Uh, so now we, we kind of launch into Richie's POV. We get him who is now, he's now got a rental car and he's driving towards dairy. And, uh, there's a particular line here. I, I just loved as a, as a writer, uh, a truck snores by in a blast of wind and i thought that was such a uh, snores by like i've never heard that before but it just worked anyway uh so from richie's memory we get bill who gets confronted they get confronted by the cop and bill says that the the idea to build the dam was his and then Ben steps forward and says, no, the idea was mine. And then they all kind of step forward individually and claim responsibility. The cop tells them about the gray water and that basically they've been playing in like piss and shit and uh, that they shouldn't be doing that. And then uh, puts them to work uh, clearing the dam they've built. So basically, I just want to say that the cop
1: tells them to get back into the piss and shit and to, to break down the dam that they had been creating. Um so I just especially I especially thought it was funny because like Richie was being smart. He was making some smart comments and then the cop was like, "Oh yeah, you want to be, you if you want to be smart, you can go back in the
0: piss and the shit and break down that damn you guys just created." So next up, Bill and Richie uh are together at Bill's house and Richie says he wants to see the picture. Bill thinks that Georgie's haunting him. We get another mention of a turtle dream. I wrote down um and we, we know that Bill is, feels very guilty about what happened with his brother. But Richie kind of convinces him. And together they sneak into George's room. They open up the album. And we see a moving picture from a time before they were, like way before, back with like the 1800s it seems like. And they can hear and like see the cars moving. And they see two kids that look just like them in the picture and then they see it and uh it's coming for them and bill reaches into the picture richie pulls him back and the photo cuts his fingers open and then uh then they flee from the room and oh we also see that the clown has georgie's face it said so another example of the clown like looking like georgie uh so yeah what did you think of this section
1: I think, again, it's it taking on the fears that people have. The thing that, that Bill is most scared of at this point is just the fact that his brother's dead. And he keeps thinking that his like, brother is a ghost and he's haunting him and all that stuff. And Richie tells him, look, he brings up the Bible and says, like, he's not a ghost. Why would he be haunting you? You didn't wrong him. And, and I guess and it kind of said that, that Bill was relieved when Richie was saying this stuff because I think Bill blames himself and says, like, I got him killed. And Richie was like, no, you were just making a boat so your brother could go have fun while you were sick in bed. And uh, I thought it was crazy that that the the night that Georgie was killed, again they, they mention it with no no like explanation in any way. But Stephen King writes in that he was dreaming about a turtle. So the turtle's back in the in the mix, and I still don't know what it means. And yeah. I still want still to know what like it means.
0: what the fucks with the turtle. So it's kind of meta, but I mean that's what this podcast is about. So ha- have you seen the trailers for the new movie? Yes,
1: but since I, I saw it once or twice and didn't really break it down or anything, so I I know there were a couple scenes like I saw. I think what I think what you're leaning towards is that there's like um the the photo book rather than being a photo book is going to be like some sort of like slideshow display yeah. type thing.
0: Yeah, I think I think I think that this scene is essentially being adapted to where like there's more there's going to be more of the characters in the room and it's going to be on a on a on a slideshow um but i feel like this is that's this is the spiritual predecessor to that scene that we see in the trailer
1: i think so too when i was reading the scene I, that's what i that's that's really the only thing i remember from the trailer other than the i don't really know if i should even say it just in case people were reading the book and don't want any spoilers from the trailer so there's okay. one other part that i remember
0: that i don't want to say right now okay yeah, um, so next we get uh, Richie, Ben, and Bev. This is another thing where it kind of jumps forward, and then he kind of comes back to explain how this happened, but we learn that all three of them have gone to see a horror movie together, and uh, so we find out how this happened. Essentially, Richie calls around, tries to invite everybody else to go see a movie with him, because he he, um, he gets some money. He had to mow the whole
1: lawn, and he made That's only right.
0: two dollars. Two whole dollars. And then, but like, nobody can go with him, um, and and then he finally like lands on on ben and ben's like oh sure i'll go you know and, and is is happy to go yeah because he's low he's their new friend and he's lonely he's lonely he doesn't do anything he had to look up the phone number in the phone book because he didn't even know it and then he was right. able to get him so yeah ben's happy to go and then on the way to the theater it seemed like he's kind of playing with his yo-yo and he encounters uh beverly and they have a little discussion about the yo-yo and bev shows him a bunch of tricks we learned that she she's like quite skilled with the yo-yo and we get an impression that, like, maybe Richie doesn't have a crush on her like, like Ben has. But he definitely has, like, an attraction. And he kind of essentially invites her to come to the movie like it's a date. And she even points out, like, oh, this is this a date? And he says yes. And we, we kind of notice that Richie's kind of smooth in his own way. Like, he uses a lot of dumb voices to, like, give himself, like, uh, confidence. But he he absolutely isn't like Ben who like can barely speak when he's in her her presence and then so now they're going on this date but then they meet up with Ben who is completely flabbergasted to see that like Beverly all of a sudden is coming to this movie with them and they go see a double feature in the theater and we learn that the bullies are also down in front of like down in a different row watching the same movie as them I mentioned in
1: the first first episode of this podcast that I was hoping that Beverly, I kind of got the, the idea that she would be like her own person, whereas like what we got in uh, in her adult life is that she had become submissive to a lot of like the things. She kind of ended up with her dad, like the guy that she was right. married to ended up being very similar to her dad. So she she was different when she was a kid. She was more of like a free spirit and kind of had her own um, individuality, whereas Later on, she, she seems to like have fallen into a pretty rough relationship where she doesn't really have that. Um, so I was excited to see her, how I hoped she would be. She was exactly how I hoped she would be. So she was cool. Um, this is really the first part that we get of her other than her yeah. running away from her abusive husband. So I like her character a lot. I think the difference between Ben and um, Richie's attraction is that I think Ben is like in love with her like he's that's why he's like and he's also like insecure about himself and that's why he can't talk to her and that kind of thing but and richie just is kind of realizing that like oh she's like he's kind of finding himself as like he's like going through puberty and he's like oh she's an
0: attractive girl kind of thing so the story really hops around and i'm noticing that we're about to hop away from this section again um this is just how it's how it's written uh king does a lot of these like interweaving storylines and, and different time. And it's actually kind of amazing to me how well he handles it, considering all these different threads he's weaving together. I was actually thinking about this. I feel like he has. I think what he.
1: I mean, I'm not gonna try to understand how he did it, but in my mind, how I would how I would have to do this is I think he wrote the narrative straight, and he knew the things that he wanted to happen, and then I think he played with where he put them within the story to kind of Mm. do different things to the reader to what's that
0: for maximum like try and achieve the maximum effect
1: right like like playing something earlier so Mm -hmm. that somebody has some sort of context of what's happening later to make it more impactful or whatever it is i just feels like he knew it like he knew that he was going to chop this story up and he was going to dole it i actually wrote something about this um in my notes i was just talking about how he's doling out the information of them when they're kids and then Mike's story which we'll talk about is basically the interlude the adult Mike story is the interlude that we'll get to But -hmm. we also did have one interlude chapter in the first episode Um, He's like in between Most of the interlude so far as him contemplating calling all the adults So we're Mm -hmm. kind of get and we're getting it in such an interesting order because it goes kids Everything that happened when they were kids Mike which is like in between and he's trying to decide if he should call the adults and then the adults are all on their way back after having gotten Mike's call. So I just thought it was really interesting how he's giving us, he knows exactly what he's doing. He's giving us the information that we need and then teasing
0: us and, you know, having all yeah. these different things happen. It's, it's, it's a sure hand being displayed by the author here. And uh, I, I definitely always get that impression when I read it. Anything he, he's written really is that you feel like he is in supreme control of his narrative. Uh, so next we get uh, Richie and Bill who are going to go to the house on Nebalt Street because Bill declares that he wants to kill the monster. <laughs> he says, we're going to kill that thing for killing my brother. And so they bring a slingshot and Bill's father's pistol. And uh, Richie brings along some sneezing powder. And uh, they have a discussion about that. And then they uh, they ride to the house on Nebalt Street. Bill goes in through the cellar window. Richie follows him down. And this is the next uh, creature we get here. We get the werewolf. Kind of like Universal's Wolfman. So, again, we're going back to Universal Monsters. Yeah. Well, I think it's uh, like Teen Wolf is like the actual movie they're referencing, right? Well,
1: uh, maybe there was an older Teen Wolf, but Teen Wolf was an 80s movie. Yeah. Like the one that I know, the Michael J. Fox one.
0: Yeah. I think they are. I think they mentioned Teen Wolf by name. There must be an earlier version. Um, anyway, uh, they have this confrontation with it in the in the cellar of the house on Ebald Street. Bill shoots it a couple times. Uh, Richie throws the sneezing powder in its face, and then they escape. They get on the uh, they get on the bike, as you said, and uh, there's like a really intense scene where they're trying to pick up speed to get away from it. It's running after them and uh, kind of gets a good couple of good slashes in on on uh, Richie, who's on the back of the bike. And uh, then finally they escape and we move on to the next chapter.
1: This is another situation where uh, the the bikes are really effective in getting away from it. They, I will say that he, they were still getting hit by, it. and it was crazy because he's traveling at ridiculous speeds like basically right next to them while they're trying to pedal away and stuff and he keeps like knocking into Richie and stuff on the back. Um, one other thing I did want to mention was they had this weird cut in where five years from now richie will be like doing homework or something like that and he'll see like jfk on the tv and it'll make him think of his old childhood friend um stuttering bill or uh just bill and it makes him think of jfk makes him think of him just because he's so charismatic and he just seems like a good person but seemingly he didn't remember that childhood friend until that moment and then he almost immediately forgot about him again Right. So it was just interesting to see again, like those memories are gone, but and yet they weren't really hundred percent gone. Yeah. They were just kind of something, foggy. something
0: supernatural affecting their memories. Yeah. I just realized I skipped a little part, um, and I want to go back and just briefly address it. Um, for some, I thought that maybe it came later, but I just skipped it. So the the uh, Bev and Ben and Richie are in the movie theater with the bullies, and then they come out of the movie theater, and the bullies confront them in the alleyway and they have this another epic showdown where Ben, like, rams one with his head, and, like, Bev gets thrown against the wall, but she also, uh, like, Eddie trips one, and she gets some good hits in, and then they all run away together after kind of, like, beating up and standing up to these bullies, and then they escape down to the Barons. Yeah, that all happened before the Richie and Bill stuff. I just forgot to mention it. Do you want to talk about that part at all?
1: This is what I meant by Ben being a badass. Like, he, he knows somehow like off just by sheer knowledge he knows how to make this like it, it was a it was a piece of architecture that like had a name it was like a specific dam that had a name and he knew yeah. like the theory behind it without have, having ever read about it or anything like that and then he's also stood up to the bullies i mean he's afraid to stand up to them but that's understandable but each time he does he's he's able to get his own licks in and then this time he's kind of motivated by the fact that Bev is there and he like slams one and and like he just I think he was awesome and yeah Richie Richie trips one everybody gets in there Um, and I thought that was cool to see the losers club because I think that's Richie called them the losers club after that yeah that was the first time that they had called themselves that so I thought that was cool that the losers club stood up to these these bullies who were older than them
0: I think it's kind of another moment of solidifying their friendship too right like after this they've been to battle together kind of and and they're they're now gonna be even closer
1: there's also there's also one more part I, I believe it's it's right here. It's it talks about when they get back to the barons um bill shows up with another another kid who he had mm-hmm. like went to speech therapy with or something like that and he shows up with another kid and they they see him and and um i think it was either richie or bill that were like this kid's like here and he might come and poke in and hang out a little bit sometimes but he's not part of the losers club he's like beverly mm-hmm. is and this kid is not so i just think like they'd already like solidified the group kind of just because of like um similar circumstances like dealing with it and kind of just like how they mesh within the group
0: yeah yeah there's and it's almost like again supernatural it's almost like there is a gathering that has been ordained or something and 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 it it, they could just tell he's not part of it so the other thing i wanted to mention about the confrontation with bill and richie at the house on nevall street he when he throws the sneezing powder into his face And, again, when he starts using this cop voice, both times it seems to have this, like, really powerful effect on it. And, like, hurt it more than anything else that that they're doing. Hurt it more than even the gun seems to hurt it. What'd you make of that?
1: This is part of the theory that I was talking about. Um,
0: There's one more
1: more little section that I want to get in there before I start talking about it. But I think it has something to do with... um, And I could be wrong, but I think it has something to do with standing up to him in a certain way. And like, mm-hmm. kind of, uh, we'll talk about it more later. But I think standing up to him in certain ways
0: is kind of his weakness. Okay. All right. We'll save some of that then. Uh, let's move on. We now we get uh, Bev. This is uh, uh, her adult uh, self on a plane. We she's like kind of having this flirtatious conversation with the guy next to her. We and then we get a description of what the night was like when she left Tom going over to her friend Kay's place and we learned that like her friend Kay has been seeing this coming and is really glad that she's finally uh, decided to stand up for herself and then we're back on the plane and we get a memory about the first date which lines up with what we've heard from the other characters and then all of a sudden we're back in the 50s and she's hearing a voice in a drain that says help me and then uh she, it freaks her out. She, uh, the voice says that the, uh, we all, we all float down here, knows her name, and she screams, blood shoots out of the drain, gets all over the walls and everywhere, and she runs out of the bathroom to her father, who, this is like the first real introduction to Al Marsh, who is this janitor who doesn't drink, and he, he has no vices except for he beats the shit out of Beverly, like, daily we get the impression and he comes in and immediately finds a, you know this to be an excuse to to like start hitting her
1: yeah because he doesn't see the blood there she she screamed because there's blood everywhere and then when he when he enters the room there's he he can't see the blood
0: yeah which is what did you make of that like why can't he see it
1: i think it has something to do with the same reason why i think it preys on children like that's more than anything yeah. usually he's preying on children i think he has power over children And I think that's part of the reason it has something to do with, it's similar to the fact that they all forgot once they were adults. They all, something happened as an adult, you just don't have that perception that you do when
0: you're a child. You just can't perceive certain things. It seems like it's got some sort of control over who can, like, not only see it, but remember it and, and, and even be aware of it. And that's like a pretty powerful ability to have if you want to stay hidden, right? I think I said in the first episode that he has like specific,
1: I think he can give different visions or different like situations to different people all at the same time. Um, something that I didn't mention from the, the house that they were at recent, where the ho- they were trying to go find the it to kill it, uh, Richie and Bill. Um, the werewolf, teen werewolf thing had uh, a Richie, a name tag that had Richie's name on it. That's right. Which is, I feel like it's personalizing the fear. It's personalizing where each, th- where each like, scare or fear is going to. So I think that people see it differently, but it's interesting because Bill also saw Richie's fear, right? He saw the werewolf, and he thought it was weird that it was, like, wearing, a like, a high school letterman jacket or something.
0: So he can... Yeah, I was unclear. I thought that part said that he saw the clown, but he noticed that the clown was wearing a letterman's jacket. So maybe but that's There was what no is. reference to it being a wolf so i wasn't sure it seemed to me like maybe he saw something slightly different but there were similarities maybe so maybe he was so busy so caught up trying to get richie
1: that he didn't really have time to give a specific fear to to bill
0: yeah, I don't know that we ever hear the a definitive answer to this, but I'm curious if if, um, if Bill saw just the clown the whole time with wearing a jacket, and it wasn't a wolf. It was only a wolf to, to Richie. I don't know. That would make sense to me. I, I probably, yeah. I think that's probably what it was. We'll see. I mean, that we'll re- if, if we do hear confirmation on that, we'll have to mention it next time. Um, okay, so uh, back with Bev. Um, she uh, is meeting up with Ben and Eddie to go on their date. And, oh, there it is. The boy's name is Bradley. Mm-hmm. And um, he... This is another discussion. Oh, this isn't when they went on the date. He's she's, me- she's meeting up with Ben and Eddie, not Richie. And they're playing a game, and Bradley's there. And then Bradley gets beaten by her, and he accuses her of cheating and calls her mother a whore, and then he runs off. And um, Ben tries to, like, chase after him and just, like, trips and falls on his face. She does give uh, Ben a kiss on the cheek for standing up for her. And then she... Is able to come clean about what happened with the blood, and she tells about about what happened in the bathroom. Uh, Stanley arrives, and they have this discussion, and then they all say they want to go to the house and see if they can see it. And so she takes all the boys back to her place. They go into the bathroom, and all of the all of the boys can see it. Were you expecting them at all to be able to see it? Yeah, I think so. I think when they were
1: when they were talking about going to see it, I was like, of course, there. That's the, I th- I believe it's just children. He has a certain power over children, or they're per- they're just able to perceive certain things. Um, I also think that if he wanted to, he could have made it so that they couldn't see the blood. But I think in this situation, yeah. he just wanted to. He's kind of like mm-hmm. it is trying to mess with all of their all their minds and show how powerful he is.
0: Yeah. Uh, so then they they clean up the bathroom is what is what happens next there, um, and then they discuss. They're having they're talking later at the laundromat, I believe, and Stan. Um, shares his in first encounter and he talks about going to the standpipe he was out bird watching and uh, he hears a loud sound uh, he finds out that the sound is a padlock blowing off the door and the door like basically bursting open into the standpipe he goes down inside and he starts hearing like circus sounds And circus like more than just sounds like he smells like circus peanuts and stuff like it's really like very evocative of a circus and and clowns i guess and then uh he does he does flee and uh, it kind of chases after him and he uh starts thinking about his book I believe talking about well, his yeah, block. this part's kind of tough to explain because the, the like where he runs to
1: is kind of like above like a water tower or something yeah. or something like that, and so basically he's he runs up and then the the door closes behind him and it's like locked him up on this I, I what some sort of like rooftop or something like that where there's like a water tower below, and then he's remembering that like people had died there before, yeah, and um he's hearing like the he thinks it's like the corpses that of people who have died coming after him and right, then, that's true and then so like he's all worried about it and then i think he gets so flustered or whatever it is and he decides like you're saying yeah he pulls out this bird watching book or something mm-hmm. like that that like has like different types of birds and he starts um he starts reading them off and when he's reading reading them off it it eventually it or whatever the corpses that were coming kind of subside and then the the door opens back up
0: yeah so, so something about him doing that affects it
1: and that's, this is, like, what I was trying... This is the part that I was waiting for to build the entire right. thing. So I think the, the theory, my theory, is that it has something to do with, like, children being able to perceive all of these evils, but at the same time, they're, like, if they ignore it or if there's some sort of, um, like, innocence factor in it where it's, like, um, I know that, like, innocent kids are being killed and stuff, but I guess the way to combat it is kind of either ignoring it or like being like outwardly like i guess like showing that that it's being ignored yeah and something to do i'm not i can't i haven't put all the pieces together but the theory is basically that the the children perceive things differently and then also they're kind of strong against him if they fight back because it seems like every time they fight back kind of in certain ways they're able to get away from him
0: yeah because it's not it's not as simple as like disbelieving because uh that's proven in the corcoran section right the, the kid says oh if i just don't believe this it won't happen and then he still gets killed yeah so it's not as simple as that but there is something to like standing up to it yeah in a certain like way. fighting back because that's exactly
1: what like it was almost like making like the kid was ignoring when he was reading the bird uh the bird's names and stuff like that he was kind of ignoring what was going on and like like throwing it in its face a little bit like being like i'm ignoring you so much that i can just read this book and then the same thing with richie in the house he's like doing a funny voice to kind of throw it in his face he wasn't thinking that wasn't his intention but that's what he was doing and he's like making a funny voice while they're like throwing like childish things in its face and stuff and fighting back in like innocent ways like the gun wasn't working but somehow the the uh what was it's like sneezing powder worked on it
0: right which it shouldn't have but like also that's not i feel like that is that something they still sell can you buy sneezing no powder? way
1: because people would just have it in their pockets and they'd be like boom pocket
0: sand and they would just throw it in people's faces all the time and... is that like the old version of like glitter bombing people or something i guess yeah it seems like it's probably like probably incredibly bad for you probably blinded kids like it probably was one of those really dangerous toys who
1: is yeah who's like yeah i'm gonna make this guy sneeze and just throws it in somebody's fa- and then everybody like nobody wants to be sneezing like
0: Yeah, it's awful, and like I feel like it probably, it probably makes you sneeze, but it probably also like burns like hell when it gets in your eyes, and like all these other bad things. It's just pepper flakes. Yeah. All right, right, so move on to the second interlude now, Uh, and Mike Hanlon, as an adult, is doing research in the in the library into uh, things that have happened in the past, and he's talking about recent occurrences with crimes that have been going on. And trying to decide if it's time to call everybody yet. Um, But he thinks uh, the time hasn't quite come yet. But he does say when the time comes, they'll hear the voice of the turtle. So the Uh, turtle's back again, and I still don't know what it means. Yeah. (laughs) Some more turtle, more mysterious turtle references. Um, And then we get into the kind of the meat of this second interlude, and that's his memory of speaking with his dad on two separate occasions the first time it's kind of the introduction to it and the second time is the description of the actual fire but we hear about uh something called the fire at the black spot which we've heard i don't know if you remember that's referenced earlier in the novel too in the first interlude i think yeah i remember that so we we hear about will hanlon his father who we actually have met in that other section he's who sent him to the go to the ironworks kitchener ironworks um, and Will starts talking about when he was in the army and on base uh, how the Sergeant Wilson um, who's this huge racist asshole um, makes him dig a hole and then fill it back in and then dig a hole and fill it back in and then he shits in the hole and he makes him fill it back in and it's just this, like this cycle of just like somebody once again somebody just like exerting dominance and and uh, we get another really stark look at the racism and it's like even worse than what was in the fifties, right? Like we're jumping back to like the thirties. Now we're seeing this like really terrible stuff. And, uh, and then, uh, we started to get some like, um, description of town history and how there's this, uh, group called the dairy branch of the Legion of white decency, which is supposed to be like a northerner version of the KKK. And uh, we, he mentions that 60 people died in a fire at a place called the Black Spot. And uh, then he kind of like trails off and he won't tell him about the fire um, because he's too young. Um, and then uh, a little later we get, he, he, he talks about how four years later he talked to his father again when his father was dying of cancer and his father spills more of the, of the details of the story yeah so i did some research because i was curious and um the legion of white decency appears to be something that king made up and what's odd is i was able to find a lot of references to the kkk being active in maine during that time period Hmm. so i was just curious like i don't know why i would be interested to hear if he's ever spoken about that like why he felt he needed to kind of invent this new group that is basically the kkk um that's weird but not the kkk when they were active up there and it it might be one of those things maybe i just don't know enough about it maybe there was like a a small group there that called themselves that it's just not on the internet um tough to say but i thought this was really and we'll we'll talk more about it as we go but it was almost uncanny to read this part considering what's going on in like charlottesville right now yeah exactly i mean or what just happened in charlotte i was this is
1: obviously written in the 80s and it's talking about the 30s and yet it's
0: still so culturally relevant yeah so we get the next part of the story and this is where it gets really dark um where we hear about essentially all of the uh the black community that's in dairy which is pretty pretty small um but 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 substantial are relegated to this like shack they're like driven out of town by this like by these like old white assholes who are all part of this kkk club basically and uh they form this they decide to like make it their own they take this old shitty shack and they make it into like a hop like nightclub that like all of a sudden all of the young people in town want to come to and of course the old racist white guys get really upset about this and we get a descri- description of one night where they show up with torches um much like the torches that were being wielded in in charlottesville recently the, the tiki torches yeah no these aren't tiki torches but actually i think he does say something about them being like like a lawn torch or something so it's actually a kind of amazingly similar so
1: it's kind of what you're saying is that these people are too lazy to make real torches they have they just always have shitty
0: torches right apparently and 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 uh yeah they throw their torches into the club um and then we get this description of this horrific fire that breaks out and Will, uh, Mike's father, is inside when it happens and we see people freaking out and like he gets trampled at one point. He climbs up out of the window instead of going to the front door because he, he recognizes that it's like a death trap to try and get out and he's able to escape him and some of his friends and then when they're outside Um, The racist sergeant shows up in a um, from before who made him dig all the holes, uh, shows up in a truck and basically is like incoherently shouting orders that don't make any sense. And so they like punch the guy, take the truck. um, I think this is Will's friend, not Will himself, um, runs it, rams it into the side of the building and is able to kind of open up a way so that some people can get out. But it's too late for 60 people, we hear, and there's some just horrific descriptions of, of people on fire running around. Um, he sees one woman and he says that her, her eyelids are on fire, which is just a crazy detail. Thank you, Stephen King, for that. And the other thing I wanted to say about this section is I think the framing device King uses, it works so well because he frames this as um, the, the father telling a story... But the father is like drugged out, and because the father's drugged out, he keeps thinking he's talking to like his friend instead of his son. So because of that, King's able to sneak in all these details that he probably wouldn't tell his actual son, and it also gives it kind of a dreamy feel. Um, it's really just an amazing. It might be my it might be my favorite part in the whole this whole part two. Uh, I don't know. It's definitely up there. I, I really. this this is a really striking section to me it was affecting because we're with what we're
1: dealing with here you could see something like this happening just hateful right like bigoted people just doing these awful things because there's and there's really no reason like what they 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 weren't hurting anybody they were in a club on their own people were choosing to come there no one was being forced to show up and it's just like the hate just comes in and just has to ruin it and
0: it's that evil that's in society right yeah and it's sad to say that like king is highlighting the evil in society at that time and lo and behold that evil is still strong going strong today which it it kind of makes this novel timely in a way at least to me it definitely
1: feels like it was written very very recently like i said i think i said that in the first part is that it doesn't feel like it was
0: written in the 80s right yeah 30 years ago over 30 years ago now but yeah, so then the last bit that we hear is Will describes that he saw balloons tied to the wings of a of a bird that picked up one of the clansmen in its claws, not somebody else. So I thought that was really interesting because that to me was a turn, like that was a surprising turn. Like I thought it was going to have something to do with the fire, but instead it looks like it just kind of preyed on one of the clansmen at the end. Well, isn't it kind of vague? Like it, like how didn't wasn't it kind of like like
1: it might have been an accident with the torches. Like they were hateful. The, the people were trying to like ruin their day and all that stuff. But I don't know. Did they say that somebody out and out threw it on the, on the kitchen? Cause I think that it, yeah. I think it may have had an influence in that situation.
0: I think, yes, I absolutely think there's, there's an, impl- there's an implication that there might be an influence, but we do. It's weird. Cause it's like, will says that he wants to believe that they didn't mean to actually do it, that they they just wanted to scare them. Like he wants to believe that. Now, what that says about what actually happened, I don't know. But from what from what I gathered, someone does throw it in there. Yeah. And it's almost more like Will just doesn't want to believe that of people, that they can be that bad. I could see that. Okay. And then, yeah, at the very end of Interlude 2, we get uh, Mike back in present day. Fall, he's fallen asleep in the library. And he wakes up, and he sees these tracks that have come up to where he's sitting at a table. And there's a balloon with his face on it. And the eyes are gouged out and then the balloon pops and that is the end of part two
1: something else i wanted to mention from this part here was the fact that what mike had to fight the thing that he was fighting when he was throwing the tile and all of that was basically the same thing that his dad had told him about yeah so did he inherit that fear from his dad was it the same you know was it the same thing was it that giant 10 foot wingspan
0: like bird yeah, that's a really good question because it seemed like something coming out of that movie they saw, Rodan. But this happened way before he was even born. Mm-hmm. So how why would it also be a bird? That, that is a, like a open I think an open question. Yeah. Time traveler? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, or I don't know. I don't know. Maybe maybe they have a f- fear of birds runs in the fa- the Hanlon family perhaps. Mm-hmm. They don't like that Alfred Hitchcock film. Yeah. Oh, so I, I did want to mention that uh, typically we'd like to look at our, our inbox and see if we've gotten any, any uh, feedback about, this, about the first part, and then we could talk about some of that. But because of uh, Apple taking a little while to approve our podcast, we ended up having to record this uh, on the day that the first episode dropped. So we haven't had time to do that. But if you want to get in feedback for the next episode, you should have time. And uh, and then if you have anything for the first episode, we might talk about that too. So, uh, And if you want to send that to uh, inktofilm at gmail.com, that's where we get it.
1: You can also find us on Twitter, at InktoFilm on Twitter. Uh, on Facebook, you can like us, also
0: InktoFilm on Facebook. And yeah, just like us. Like us, please. You know, we're good guys. <laughs> no, but you can like our page, too. That would also be good. Uh, we got the we got the website up and running now. Uh, it's uh, inktofilm.com. We were able to get that domain, so I'm pretty stoked about that. And, uh, oh, we should definitely say uh, thank you to Ross Bugden. Uh, he has a YouTube channel that we were able to get uh, our intro music from. And uh, we want to thank him for allowing us to to use it
1: and then just one more thing we want to address is this is our first project here it um we're, we're covering the book and then as soon as we're done with the book we're going to go see the film as it comes out um and in the future we're hoping to do other projects we're hoping to do oh, yeah. other books that are being adapted to films and coming out in theaters soon and maybe eventually we'll do books that have already or films that have already come out but we're not really sure yet
0: yeah i think. Yeah if you have any suggestions absolutely send them in i i do think um we're gonna have to do that because it will be impossible to schedule otherwise if we're, if we're always trying to look for a release date and everything i think we're gonna have to do some some material that's already out there which will uh which will be good because that will allow us to dive into the to the movies a little more um in the future i'm really looking forward to jumping into the movies guys we're, we'll, we'll be there soon <laughs> yeah you be a little more in your uh in your wheelhouse i guess Oh, we did want to say if you enjoy this, make sure you subscribe so that you can keep on top of, uh, whenever the new episodes come out. Um, leave us a review if you're feeling generous, because that would really be, uh, be helpful. Um, and yeah, I hope you, I hope you've been enjoying this. Um, we got, we got three more parts to record here for, for it, the novel, and then we'll go see the movie.
1: Yeah. Thank you guys for listening. We're having a great time doing it. So hopefully you're enjoying listening.
0: All right, guys. Uh, Hopefully we'll see you for the next episode. Thanks a lot.